Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Banter minus Eric. Uh, that's a bummer. However, we have a very special guest today, and this guest is a long time coming. I think it's been probably about a month that we've been trying to get him on the show. Uh, we, we got him successfully one time, and the internet wouldn't work. And then twice, not once, but twice, we blew off this man. We scheduled for him to come on the show, and then we didn't show up. So when I called the schedule a third time, I thought for sure that uh, he would refuse. But gracious, uh, kind, but beneficent. There are not enough kind words to say about our guest today. None other than, and an attitude to go along with his name, Devin Nicely. How are you today, Devin? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to have you on the show because I'm super pumped to talk about apologetics today. That is uh, my maybe not so secret passion. We don't, we haven't talked about it a ton on the show, but we're going to really milk you for all your worth today. Before we get into the meat of the show, though, we always like to start the show a little bit light and fluffy. Um, maybe the first thing we should do is just introduce you to the people. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, where you come from and where you are now? Sure. Uh, my name is Devin Nicely. I'm from originally from Clifton Forge, Virginia. Uh, I attended uh, Lone Star Christian Church ever since I was like two pounds and five ounces. And uh, <laughs> I recently moved over to Lynchburg. I'm working at Liberty University right now, hopefully going to use those uh, tuition benefits to get a degree in apologetics. Wow. Very, very cool. And something very exciting has happened in your life. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, on July 4th of this year, uh, I married my sweetheart, who is actually in the room over there. So if you hear anything in the background, it's probably her. <laughs> What's her name and how'd you meet her? Uh, her name is Hannah. And uh, believe it or not, we actually met online <laughs> of all places. <laughs> Hannah, that's a, that's a solid biblical name. I like it. Um, is Hannah at all interested in apologetics, or do you guys have to bond over other things? Uh, we bond over other things. <laughs> yeah, apologetics. No, nope. no, no problem with that. I, I have a wife who, while she is a, um, a true believer in Jesus Christ and a great sister in the faith, she is not very interested in theology, which is part of why I get to geek out with Eric once a week. So I don't go home and chew, chew her ear out about things that she's not interested in. Uh, and for the record, everyone should be at least a little bit interested in a, in a theology. But the particular subject today, I think, is an especially important element of theology, which is apologetics. And usually Eric likes to start with softball questions. He'll bring up some silly article or ask you to tell a story. I'm so excited about our subject today that we're just going to get right down to it. So uh, first question for you, Devin, is why do you feel the need to apologize for your Christian faith? I don't. So why don't you tell everyone what apologetics actually is instead of the silly jokes that we like to make about it? What is apologetics? Uh, apologetics uh, comes from the Greek word apologia or apologia. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't speak Greek. But it basically means to speak in defense. And in the uh, realm of Christianity, it basically means to give a defense for the faith. And uh, so defending uh, things about the Bible, about God, about Christianity in general, about a Christian worldview, uh, and all sorts of other things. Anything in the realm of 
uh, Christianity. Uh, if you're talking about it and defending it, then you are engaging in apologetics. Now, do you think apologetics is something for the experts, or is this actually an exercise for all believers, in your view? I think it's both. Um, there are arguments that I discovered when I first started having doubts years ago um, that I took a second look at recently, and they are much more complex and very deep, uh, much deeper than I originally thought they were. And uh, it's simple enough. You can give a simple enough answer to where it will help, you know, the average Christian struggling with doubt, but is also um, complex enough to where uh, theologians and uh, apologists alike can have long discussions on it and pretty much wear everybody out <laughs> and turn their brain to silly putty. So, uh, yeah. So you, you would say apologetics are for everyone at the appropriate level, not, not the same level of apologetics for everyone, but some level of apologetics. For everyone. Yeah, I think everybody should be engaged in apologetics, at least at a rudimentary level, um, because at some point, if you're living out your Christian faith, then you're going to be you're going to experience a little bit of pushback and knowing how to handle that and how to hopefully point that person to Christ is absolutely imperative. Now, what are some of the biblical passages you would cite in support of apologetics? Because there are some Christians, well-meaning Christians, who would say, well, we shouldn't argue with people. We shouldn't have debates. I mean, that's just not a, a for you'll have to forgive all the puns on your last name, but there's there's no getting away from them. Um, like that, that's not a very nice thing to do. Um, what what are some passages that come to your mind that you think biblically support an apologetic? Well, there's the pretty much every apologetics uh, ministry uses in uh, I believe it was First Peter chapter three. Uh, I not good with citations, but it basically says, um, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Um, and also, I would just go to pretty much any passage where you find somebody um, giving a defense for the Christian faith or for even early uh, Judah, even Elijah, you know, on um, the mountain with all of the prophets of Baal. Uh, he did not just tell them, believe it because you should believe it because it's true. He He literally just showed them that it was true. Uh, you know, so there are uh, miraculous apologetics, there are uh, textual and historical apologetics, there's all sorts of um, ways that you can show somebody that uh, the faith that to which you hold is true. Hmm. So I actually got interested in apologetics a few years back. In a moment, I'll ask you how you got into it. But I will tell you, I had sort of a bit of a crisis in recent years where I had done all this studying apologetics. And then I was wondering, well, is this really something that we should be engaging in, uh, especially in terms of like formal debate? Because it's one thing to talk to your neighbor. It's another to get up on a stage and to have opening statement and counter statement and cross-examination, um, what we might call formal apologetics. And then I was studying the book of Acts, and I believe it's in Acts, it's either Acts 16 or Acts 17, might be Acts 18, somewhere in there where um, Apollos is sort of brought to a full understanding of the faith by, I think it's Priscilla and Aquila. And it says, either at the end of 17 or the beginning of 18, somewhere in there, it says that he would go into the synagogue and vigorously defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Jews. Um, and I, I might not even be using strong enough language. So the, the word there might be even stronger. It's the idea that he, he was fighting tooth and nail 
uh, against these deniers of the central truth of the faith. And I was like, wow, wow. I, I just never really seen that before that, okay, yes, we're called to kindness, gentleness, meekness, all those things. Um, but when it comes to truth, we are called to vigorously defend it as Apollos and as Paul did. Absolutely. So let, let me ask you, how, how did you get into apologetics? Because the well, the thing that got me into it, besides just the fact that I started asking a lot of questions, I mean, that that's probably the main reason. Uh, but then I discovered Ravi Zacharias. And I'll ask you in a minute who some of your sort of formative um, apologists are. But let's just start with how you even got into it in the first place. Like, you're raised in the church. Uh, I assume that you learn basic doctrines of the faith. And uh, at what point did you sort of take that tack? Well, um, it was actually, I, I can actually remember the exact week um, that I started having my first doubts. Uh, it was my junior year in high school and a family member who was very close to me uh, came home from um, a liberal arts university and um, basically told our family, hey, I'm agnostic. And I didn't even know what that word was. I had to look it up. And uh, so <laughs> when I found out what it was, you know, I was just like, it was like error 404, like does not compute. Like what, what is going on here? You know, I've known, known this person my entire life. And all of a sudden, you know, this happens. And um, about a month after that, I started having questions of my own. You know, that person was always a smart person in our family. And I'm like, well, what if they're right? And what if I'm wrong? Like, what if they're onto something, you know? What if they learned something in college that, you know, they're not teaching us or telling mm -hmm. us in the church, you know, something like, and it was just this big spiraling, just, it, it was horrible. And um, so I started asking around, I asked uh, people at our church, I asked my parents, anybody that I could, you know, uh, people that I trusted, um, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, but it seemed like nobody could help me. The only thing that they would, were able to tell me was, Hey, I'm praying for you. Just have faith, read your Bible, listen to Christian music. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's so funny how similar this part of this part of your story is to so many other Christ, young Christian apologists I know. <laughs> yeah, mainly because, uh, you know, you go to your church expecting these people to be able to help you to work through these tough questions. But it seems like most of them, if they did have those questions, were probably taught the same thing that they were trying to teach you just have faith, pray, read your Bible, you know, and God will, you know, just reveal to you, you know, that you have nothing to worry about. And it, I mean, that's, that's okay. But, you know, if that's not the only answer you have, then it's better than not saying anything. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I do think that be able to answer those kind of questions that come from, uh, especially the youth in our church today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, any of that from my church, not to, you know, bash anybody. I'm not bashing. I love my church family. They're fantastic. But I had to go elsewhere to get the answers that I was looking for. And when I found out that there were actually really thoughtful answers from people who had spent a lot of time thinking about these questions uh, and engaging with, you know, atheists and agnostics, it was it was like an entire world was opened up to me. Um, the first book that I had ever, um, it was about a year after I started having those doubts. Uh, I went to a, it was sort of like a VBS sort of thing, but for teenagers, it was called Teen Week. They have it in Covington every year and three churches get together and like put on this big giant thing. It's fantastic. But the group leader that I was paired with, 
uh, he, I, I opened up to him about these doubts that I was having. And he says, oh, well, if, if you're coming back tomorrow, I'll bring you a book. I said, okay, cool. Yeah, sure. And so he brought me uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And that book just blew my mind. It was fantastic. And um, then I started kind of looking into Tim Keller's work. And then uh, all these other apologists were popping up, you know, in my search uh, suggestions. And um, I, I just could not believe the amount of scholarship that had gone into some of these questions that I thought were really tough. And then when I looked into them, I was like, oh, people have been asking these questions for hundreds of years. This is this is nothing new. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, so I that's kind of what got me. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the big eye openers when you first start to look into apologetics is, you know, the first time you start asking these questions, it feels like no one's ever asked this before. And then you find out there are no new questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the other thing is, I think you have a new question. And then once you start searching, you find out that that question is pretty much just a different form of a question that was asked by like Plato thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Keller. I, I'm curious about some of the other formative apologists, and don't worry yet about about telling us who you think the best ones are, because some of the some of the men who sort of inducted me into apologetics, I would not say were among the strongest of the apologetic voices. They were just the ones that I heard first. Yeah, yeah. So Tim Keller, he was like my my intro to apologetics, and um, then I don't remember what order I found these people, but, um, you know, people like William Lane Craig, um, JP Moreland, uh, Sean McDowell and all these other guys. Um, they, they were really influential and, uh, there's an entire website. Um, I don't know any of the people, but as far as I've been able to tell, you know, they're a very good website and I probably spent more time than I did playing video games back then. Uh, on this website, looking up answers to my questions, it's called gotquestions.org. And uh, these guys, they they really do their homework. I don't agree with everything that they say, uh, but, you know, for the most part, the apologetic stuff that they have on their website is pretty, pretty good. Uh, it has it gives you a basic understanding of what you're asking. And they've helped answer over 600,000 questions on their website. It is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then from they have. Uh, I try to implement this in my articles that I write for Advent Christian Voices. At the end of each article, I'll put a recommended resource if people want to investigate further into the question that I'm addressing in the article. Well, I actually got that from gotquestions.org. And so mm -hmm. that's how I found out about people is they'll recommend all sorts of other books by William Lane Craig and uh, Sean McDowell and uh, Ron Rhodes. He does a lot of stuff with cults and uh, different things like that. And it's it, it was amazing. You know, the, it's just kind of like this giant network and everybody's mm -hmm. kind of interconnected. They can't answer a question. They pretty much know somebody who can and they can point you in that direction. And um, it, it's growing, too. There's so many people out there today that are engaging in apologetics and they're making it even more accessible, getting on places like YouTube or Right Now Media or, you know, you name it. And um, the God's Not Dead series. Um, that that was also kind of an introductory thing for me, but at the same time, uh, I came back years later and I watched the movie again, and I was like, "Oh man, like, yeah, you gave a decent answer, but you could have said so much more about it." Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, um, it is well, in a little bit, we'll get into sort of good and bad apologetics, and I would say any apologetic is better than none at all. But but I I think it's fair, and not only fair, I think it's actually important for us to actually judge 
um, Christian material. I think sometimes because there's a, a Christian label or message slapped on something, we basically remove any standard of excellence, and that does the faith no service. So we'll get into some of that, but there's a couple of rabbit trails I want to go down first. Uh, first of all, how old are you? Uh, right now, I am 23, about to turn 24 in about two months. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned you mentioned yeah, I'm a, I'm uh, you mentioned video games. What was your console and game of choice during during those years that Legend. you say again? Legend of Zelda. That was my go-to. <laughs> on what? Which which one? On which console? Either. Uh, well, back then I was mostly playing Skyward Sword. That one had just come out in 2011, and um, it there's so much gameplay in there, and it was just phenomenal. And then, of course, once you beat it on easy mode, then you have to go to hard mode and test to see if you're actually worthy of wielding the Skyward Sword and all this other stuff. It's it, it, now, now. Have you played any? Have you played any of the old versions? Because I grew up on um, Ocarina of Time for the N64. Oh, man. Ocarina of Time was fantastic. Uh, Majora's Mask was another uh, good one. It was really creepy, but it was a really fun game. Um, some of the Game Boy ones, like Minish Cap and uh, Link to the Past and all this other stuff. Oracle of uh, Oracle of Seasons, I think, I played. And uh, Link's Awakening okay, so and all these other ones. It shocked me how old those games were. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're a true Zelda geek. You played them all. That's great, man. Um there was something else you said I wanted to sort of run off on for a minute. Um, oh, uh, you mentioned apologetics on YouTube. So we'll we'll talk about sort of your favorite apologist, but how about just um, your favorite YouTube apologist, someone who'd be a really good entry-level apologist for someone who's listening right now and might say, well, I might be interested in this, but they're not quite ready for a three-hour-long debate with William Lane Craig or James White. Yeah. Um... By far, uh, I'll answer this in two parts. My favorite YouTube apologist has to be uh, Mike Winger. Uh, he has a um, channel. Well, it's basically Mike Winger, but the thing's called Bible Thinker. Uh, and he's just so faithful to the text of Scripture, and he doesn't um, kind of set that to the side at all. It always has front stage, and I really admire that about the guy. And he has no motive. Um, he's not trying to make money. He's not trying to do anything, get fame or anything like that. He's just a guy just be faithful to the calling put upon his life. And I like that guy, but he is not for entry level. <laughs> so if somebody's <laughs> looking for an entry, level, I would definitely go with um, the one minute of uh, Bobby Conway. He answers just thou literally thousands of questions he has on his YouTube channel in like five minutes or less. And he'll have all sorts of other apologists on to come and help summarize their arguments that they've made. Um, he's had people on, he's had Mike Winger on there before. He's had David Wood, uh, to talk about Islam. He's had, um, Frank Turek on to talk about all sorts of other stuff. Uh, Frank Turek actually is the other one that I would recommend because he has a bunch of stuff on cross-examined and, um, he, he also has just kind of short videos, you know, that are very topical and, uh, mm -hmm. you could pretty much just search whatever question cross-examined after it and it'll probably come up. Uh, or mm. one minute apologist, either. Mm. Uh, Mike Alex showing his age, insisting we have to go further back in the uh, Zelda timeline. I'm sorry, Mike. I was born in 1990. I can't help it. 
This is this is what you'll have to get used to, Devin. Is there's going to be there, our our chat is very active and they're lots of fun. Um, let's go. There's so many directions we can go. Just like so many places we could go with apologetics. And I love. I asked Devin before the show. I asked him a very dangerous question. I said, "Hey, what's our cutoff time?" And he, at, at his own detriment, said, "Nah, man, I got no plans." So I am going to grill him for at least an hour and a half, probably longer. This is one of my favorite subjects. Let me ask you this: who, who do you think are the best, at least from the ones you've been exposed to, the best in the field um, right now? Because I know I have some favorites, like guys I really like. Uh, actually, a great example, and and. Uh, he passed away earlier this year. Uh, rest in peace, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, one of my favorites to listen to. But in terms of like argue, quality of arguments, I don't know that he was necessarily ever cream of the crop. Uh, he had lots of interesting things to say. But if I were to, you know, like choose just the absolute strongest uh, debaters, I, I wouldn't have chosen him, despite the fact that he's one of my favorites to listen to. So as far as just strength of the arguments, who would you say are the best in the field right now? Yeah, so, so um, I guess it would really depend on what direction you were wanting to go uh, in apologetics. There's many different kind of fields within apologetics you go. Um, one that just pops right off the top of my head is uh, Gary Habermas and his work on the his, uh, historical resurrection, uh, the historicity of Jesus. Uh, he basically destroys Jesus' mythicism in, you know, without breaking a sweat. Um, the evidence for the resurrection, fantastic. He takes the lowest common denominator, which is basically every uh, piece of historical evidence that we have that is accepted by universally every historian, both non-Christian and Christian. And he compiles that together in a book uh, with uh, Michael Icona, who is kind of his protege. Uh, and it's called The Evidence no, the case for the resurrection of Jesus, that's what it was. And uh, they lay out five historical facts that no theory except for the fact that Jesus was resurrected can account for all, all five points of the uh, data that they present. It is insanely strong, and I've seen them uh, tear apart really well-known and very brilliant guys um, in debates. You know, people like Anthony Flew and uh, Christopher Hitchens and all these other guys. Uh, so as far as historical evidence, I would definitely go with Gary Habermas or Michael Icona. Um, philosophical arguments, I would probably go with uh, William Lane Craig. His, his stuff on the Kalam has been revolutionary, obviously. Uh, I believe he's actually the one who coined the term Kalam, cosmological argument, uh, from his uh, doctoral thesis on it. I believe it was at Birmingham that he uh, wrote that. Um, and his stuff on the moral argument, I was actually just reviewing that today, and it was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, mm -hmm. He loves answering tough questions, never really shies away from them. And he always seems to have just the right answer for just the right question. Um, his preparation for his debates is mind-boggling, and it makes me want to take a nap for five hours. <laughs> uh, so, philosophically, um, you know, if you're going with uh, cults and, you know, trying to figure out stuff about them, I actually don't know very many people who deal a lot with cults, um, but the one, if you're dealing with Islam, is definitely David Wood uh, from Act 17 Apologetics. He has his own YouTube channel, and he is absolutely phenomenal. He knows uh, the Quran almost as well as he knows the Bible, and 
he has basically destroyed every um, Muslim apologist out there, including one of the, the, they say he's one of the best. I don't know that much about him. His name is Shabir Ali. But the mm-hmm. one debate that I did watch with him made him look like a five-year-old and in his, you know, intellect on, you know, uh, Quranic answers uh, to tough questions. Uh, so David Wood is fantastic. But um, if I had to pick one overall, it would probably have to be Gary Habermas because he also did um, philosophical arguments. He's actually uh, the director of the philosophy department here at Liberty University and um, haven't gotten to meet him yet, but I'm <laughs> hoping that our paths will cross one day. But uh, yeah, I'd have to put him up there near the top. And okay. William Lane Craig is a very. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to check out um, Gary Hebermast after this because I, I sort of run in these apologetic circles, but I'm not familiar with him. So I'm, I appreciate you giving me a new name to check out. That'll be hours of. Uh, I'm up and down with Matt Slick at times. He's some decent info on cults at karm.org. I think the other one who does really well with a lot of the cults at groups is James White. Uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily touch all of them, but uh, I know he he's at least touched on King James onlyism. He's touched on Jehovah's Witnesses, on Mormonism. Just because of where he is in the country, he runs into a lot of people from those groups. And so because of his interactions with them, he's also at, maybe not David Wood's strength, but he's done some phenomenal debates with some muslim apologists too yeah james white uh, i'm actually reading one of his books right now the one you mentioned of uh, the only controversy uh, oh man, he goes into is just phenomenal i love that book and i'm really hoping that i can actually finish it i haven't had much time to read into it recently but yeah his yeah. work on the trinity uh top notch and um his ministry uh i feel like he's the same he's in there with um oh gosh what's his name jeff Uh, durbin Durbin. Mm -hmm. Durbin. and they actually go over to like salt lake city utah and they go outside the mormon temple and they'll just like witness to people going in or going out and you know they'll have that on video to show people how to interact with uh mormons and oh man this stuff is absolutely just top notch i absolutely love it and if you ever want to see him in a newsboy cap then that's the place to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, so many directions we could go. Let's let's start with let's start with this. In bringing up some of your favorite apologists, you sort of uh, dipped your toe in the water of apologetic approach, right? Because William Lane Craig is very philosophical. I would say Ravi Zacharias is in the same camp. Lots of philosophical arguments. And then another guy we just mentioned, James White, he is very insistent on, what does he call it, presuppositional apologetics, or maybe what you might call biblical apologetics. There's there's a lot of, uh, as, as is the case in any group, it's not a monolith. There's a lot of disagreement within the group about how even apologetics is to be done. What's the faithful way uh, to do apologetics? What's the most productive way? And so um, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, because I know that you could. But if you wouldn't mind just sort of laying out a basic understanding of, of, of those main sort of uh, apologetic approaches in the mix and then pick out the one that you prefer and tell us why. Okay, uh, there's three that I can think of right now, and that is uh, the one that you mentioned, presuppositionalism. Um, the one that I kind of like uh, the best is classical apologetics. And uh, the third one would be evidential apologetics. 
And I'll be honest, I actually haven't really looked into evidential apologetics that much. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. mainly stick with classical uh, and presuppositionalism. I actually watched a debate uh, between uh, Cy Tem Bruggenkate, which is one of the most hoity-toity uh, presuppositionalist guys out there, oh, yeah. and, uh, Mike Winger. And uh, but classical, um, there's not a lot in the name, so you kind of have to break it down. And so basically, the way I understand classical apologetics is that it's kind of a process. And so instead of just jumping straight into the evidence for the resurrection or for prophecy, you kind of meet people where they're at. And so, you know, you just kind of get to know them a little bit and ask them, you know, well, hey, do you do you believe that there is a God? You know, do you believe uh, in, you know, physicalism and naturalism and materialism? You know what? And just find out if they don't believe in God, that's a pretty great place to start. You know, uh, and so you could go with the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, you could go for the moral argument, you know. And, you know, find out kind of what interests them the most. You might bore them to death with the Kalam, but uh, they're really into social justice, uh, for example, then the moral argument might be the place to go because they're already kind of in that whole moral sphere. And so classical apologetics, you know, once you get that basic uh, belief down that, hey, there is a God out there and they're just like, OK, it will find you know, you moral argument. You know, whatever there could be a god what makes it the christian god and then you go into stuff like the resurrection and uh fulfilled prophecy from the bible uh different stuff like that and so, mm-hmm. so that's kind of the approach that i like to take because it kind of just helps to connect with people trying to witness to a little bit better um presuppositionalism i've heard uh, a couple of different ways of going about that actually and uh, <laughs> the one that sides have is in advance. Uh, if I were to summarize um, his main apologetics, I have broken cake, and I might be misrepresenting him here. I haven't watched a whole lot of his stuff, but from him laying out how he goes about it, it's basically him walking up to people and saying, Hey, you know that Christianity is true. You know that God exists because, you know, everybody knows it. And if you deny it, you're just suppressing it. You know, so just get. <laughs> <laughs> it is like presuppositionalism and then whereas james white i feel like he would go a little bit uh more thoughtful in his approach uh than si <laughs> uh, like i said james white's fantastic well but, uh, but, yeah but i think i think this is one of the realities of apologetics that there's just no getting away from which is while it attempts to be uh a, a purely objective sort of form of seeking and and propagating truth there's no removing the personalities i mean the the part of the reason that i loved robbie zechariah so much wasn't necessarily because he was the greatest apologist in the world but he was so warm and welcoming and uh fatherly like that you can't remove so maybe siphon bruggenkate's uh, apologetic isn't necessarily that bad but his uh, his personality is tough to 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 deal with, and I, I don't think there's any removing the personalities from the apologetics. I, although I do think there are uh, some guys, at least in their formal debates, guys like James White, uh, guys like you mentioned uh, William Lane Craig, who who really do a, a great job of attempting to be winsome. And to me, it, it's just uh, it's actually very biblical this idea that you would try to meet people wherever they are. When you look at Acts 17, where uh, Paul is in Athens and he comes before the Areopagus, 
it says uh, that he looked carefully at the idols in that city, which sort of brings up, I think, another subject here that maybe scares some people away from apologetics, which is if you're into apologetics, let's say that you want to defend the faith against Muslims, you're going to spend a lot of time in the Quran. There are some people who might say, like, well, why would you why would you spend your time polluting your mind with the arguments of the world or of a cult or of a non-believer? So why don't you answer maybe some of those concerns, this idea that apologetics is maybe something harmful because it's exposing you to anti-Christian arguments? Yeah, sure. Um, while I'm doing that, I'm going to go over and get my charger because my phone is yeah, yeah. dying. But I can <laughs> no problem. So, yeah. But um yeah, so there was actually a question that somebody asked Mike Winger uh, earlier yesterday. Uh, they were a, sorry, hi, this is my wife. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, all right, fantastic. All right. There's a question that uh, somebody asked Mike Winger yesterday during his live stream. He was doing like a 20 questions type thing. And they asked um, A for them to uh, research things in the Quran because they were in. Uh, uh, a school of either theology or apologetics. They were, it might've been a master's in theology and apologetics, mm -hmm. but they kind of conflicted. They were like, you know, should I even touch this book? You know, cause it's just, it's full of lies and heresy and all this other stuff. And it was really weighing on him. And the one thing that Mike said, he was just like, no, don't feel bad about it because you're really helping to understand where these people are and we understand where the people are that you're, then you kind of in trying to convince them of the truth of your worldview of Christianity. That I feel like there we go. I feel like that um, really kind of summed it up well. Mm -hmm. And so I, I actually had the same thing when I was uh, looking into Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, not Witnessism. I don't think that's a word, but. Um, when I was looking into that, uh, their theology and you know their beliefs, uh, I actually ordered a copy of the New World Translation, which is their um, translation of the Bible. And uh, you know, as I when I got it, it came in from Amazon. You know, I was kind of flipping through it and I was researching and doing stuff, and I just kind of felt dirty. You know, it's like you know this this book. I just kind of mm -hmm. felt horrible house, and I ended up burning it, um, but uh, because they take wow. central uh, doctrines and distort them. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was kind of young and naive in uh, my faith and not really sure about a lot of things. But now, you know, I would, if I had gotten it again, I would, you know, uh, because really you can do so much more witnessing to these people if you really take time to understand where they're coming from, what their beliefs are. And if you understand what their beliefs are, you can better kind of tack down exactly where their beliefs fall apart. Um, mm. Clay Jones does another uh, philosoph uh, philosophical apologist guy. Um, he actually has a method of witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses that he uses almost every single time. He actually got it, I think, from a former Jehovah's Witness uh, who came out of the Watchtower Society. And uh, they told him about it. They said, this really bugged me and I could not get around it. And so he uses that to reach out to other Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, whenever they come mm -hmm. to their, his door and actually has been known to actually go into kingdom halls and witness to people there. Uh, mm. Yeah. He's kind of intense, but, <laughs> but yeah. And so I think that people need to feel bad about looking at, you know, reading the Quran if for the purpose of, you know, 
understanding where people are at so that they can more effectively witness. Um, mm. You know, if you're for entertainment or whatever, you know, that, that might be a little bit of a gray area. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would go there. Uh, but me personally, anyway, but, you know, if you're really, you're doing it for uh, the advancement of the kingdom uh, and for, you know, the salvation of the souls that are lost and deceived in these uh, cults and other religions, then mm -hmm. I don't think you have anything to feel bad about. Mm -hmm. Now, I appreciate what, what you said a moment ago about the importance of understanding the person that you're having the discussion with or the argument with or the debate with. One thing that I've observed, Devin, and maybe you can speak to this if you've observed this too, uh, I, I really enjoy listening to like the the uh, really highly technical, several hours, formal debates between two uh, uh, philosophical giants, whether it's Christian and atheist or Christian and Muslim or Christian and Jehovah's Witness. Like I, I really enjoy that stuff. However, I have found myself increasingly frustrated as I'm looking for more and more good debates because so often these uh, these really, really intelligent men end up spending two hours talking past each other. And I think that happens on the highest levels of apologetics, but it also happens on the lowest levels where you're just talking with your neighbor or your friend or your family member and you end up like ships passing in the night. Um, is that something that you've observed in a lot of apologetics, whether high or low? And and uh, how is it that you think that we can address that in our own practice? Yeah, uh, we've actually heard this uh, a lot. Um, you know, apologists have been hearing, you know, you can do apologetics, but don't do a formal debate, you know, because that's just absolutely pointless. You know, you're always talking past each other. And it, it is a statistical reality that, almost nobody has been converted through a formal debate. And what I mean by that, let me clarify that because there's something important that I want to touch on here um, because that is true. But what we're talking about is the two debaters, the two debaters, one and two who are going at each other, almost never uh, convert the other. But that's hmm. the thing. That's the whole point. The debate is not for the person that you're debating. It's for the crowd. It's for the audience. And so you're basically uh, trying to showcase why your worldview is correct and then pointing out the flaws in your opponent's worldview for the benefit of the audience. It's not for the person that you're debating with. It's for the audience themselves because the person in the debate, I mean, the, they have a big dog in the fight. You know, the people who come to mm -hmm. the debate, they're just kind of for the information. And so your job is not to try to convince that other person. Your job is to, you know, lovingly and kindly and their false views and explain why Christianity uh, explains the science, explains the historical facts, whatever the debate might be on. It's your job to try to show the audience why your mm -hmm. position beats the position of the opponent. So it's not for the debaters, mm -hmm. it's for the audience. And so, mm. uh, in personal life, to answer the second part of your question, how can we um, kind of try to minimize that effect, that talking past each other effect. Um, it's really interesting that you asked that because uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Sean McDowell. Uh, he's Josh McDowell's son. You know, knows Josh or Sean McDowell. Yeah, Josh McDowell. He's the older one. Um, he, in his book, um, no, it wasn't in his book. It was in an interview I was watching with him. 
he told the story of when he went to go get a haircut with a buddy of his. He was carrying around an apologetics book that he was reading with him. And while his buddy was getting his haircut, uh, he was over there in the chair reading this book. And he was just sitting there where everybody could see the title of the book. And so when it was his turn, you know, the barber, or the, I don't know what the female version of a barber is, but uh, <laughs> she, uh, she said, hey, turn. And uh, he sat down in the chair. Uh, he, you know, he put his book away. And while she was cutting his hair, she asked him, she said, I noticed you were reading that book over there are you some sort of pastor or preacher and he says well yeah i'm a, a pastor i'm a, a christian apologist as well which basically means that i answer tough questions about you know the bible or god or christianity or um anything related to it and she says really can i ask you a question and he said sure go for it and she said um the, the question was basically the problem of evil you know if god is all good how can there be evil in the world Mm -hmm. The question that is literally thousands of years old at this point. Um, and, you know, he just put out the best he had. You know, he was like, this this is her big question that she was asking. And she started asking him some more questions, some follow-up questions. And he was just nailing them one after the other. And, uh, you know, giving what he thought in his mind were phenomenal answers, which they probably were. You know, he's a brilliant guy. But then all of a sudden, the, uh, the barber, she put down her her scissors and her clippers and she just kind of like fell back against the wall and like put her face in her hands and she was crying and he said are you okay and she said no this is bull crap you don't understand what i'm going through like you don't understand what i'm trying to uh what i'm trying to get and he was just like what is going on here and so he just kind of changed the subject and uh you know thanked her and gave her a generous tip and when they were walking back to the car he asked his buddy he said what happened back there? Like, I thought I was giving really good answers. And his buddy kind of looked at him and he was like, do you really want the truth right now? And he was like, yeah, sure. What happened? You know, tell me, I want to, you know, be able to do this better. And he said, uh, well, do you have any idea how arrogant you were towards her? <laughs> and he struck him. He was just like, what are you talking about? But then uh, as he was thinking about it on the ride home, he's like, you know, I really was just kind of treating her as a, a questions to be answered. I was treating her like a game show, basically, and I wasn't mm -hmm. really seeing what, you know, he was hearing why, or what questions she was asking, but she, he wasn't understanding why she was asking the questions. And mm -hmm. so it kind of made her feel human. And so none of those answers, as great as they may have been, actually mm -hmm. landed with that person. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a lot of apologists when they first start out, and I felt myself <laughs> getting a little bit like this myself. Um, yeah. You know, you can almost treat like, you know, um, an opponent rather than mm -hmm. a lost person that you're trying to, to salvation. Yeah. Uh, and I think a absolutely important uh, distinction that needs to be made when uh, mm -hmm. talking to about apologetics. Yeah. I, I had an experience with a family member maybe five or six years ago where um i when i engage in apologetics i try to ask a lot of questions rather than constantly be the one talking or giving answers um and i i feel like like i've gotten pretty good at it and i was engaging in this kind of you know a discussion with a, a close family member um and I, I i thought it was going well and all of a sudden they like threw up their hands and walked away i mean they were just so upset with me i was i was so confounded like what what just happened? And I was able to find them later and ask them about it. 
and I'll never forget what they said to me. They went, when you ask me questions, I feel like you're just trying to trap me. And I realized, oh my goodness, I just, I am just treating this person and probably other people as opportunities to win a debate rather than interactions with human beings. Um, and this is where I think, uh, you know, the, some of like the colder approaches to apologetics, well, we want to be objective. We want to be uh, fact-based. We want to be rigorous about the truth. And I, I don't think we should be um, so empathetic that we, we can't make a strong argument. However, the, the colder approaches to apologetics, I think this is where they fail, is they don't recognize the humanity of the other person across from you in the discussion. Yeah, that's, that's, it's so easy to fall into that. And um, I, I find that personally to be one of the hardest parts about witnessing to people who have tough questions uh, is that when you get from evangelizing to going into apologetics, which it's not like two opposite things, it's just part of one or the other. But uh, when you kind of get into that mode and you just kind of lose the whole, you know, you know, the love, the empathy for the person that you're trying to uh, win over. You're trying mm -hmm. to win the person, and it's so easy to fall into that. And I've had that happen to me more times than should ever have happened, period. But mm -hmm. uh, it is a very common, common thing. Yeah. I, I've still got lots of other questions I could ask, but so that I don't take up all of our time, is there anything sort of any pet uh, issues or arguments or uh, apologetic? I mean, just, I know you are neck deep in this world. So do you have any sort of pet things that you really want, would want to bring up that maybe I wouldn't think to before I plunge back in and start grilling you again? What kind of things were those? Any things that are on, on your mind? I, I said pet issues. So like, you know, stuff that is really present in your mind right now or stuff that you bring up a lot or that comes up a lot in your conversations. Because we're gonna, we're we're not done. We're still gonna continue to run the gamut. But uh, before I get too carried away, I just wanted to know if there's anything you really wanted to discuss on the show, so I don't monopolize all the time with questions. Oh, uh, no, I'm uh, not that I can think of right now. We can just keep on okay. keep on going at it. Okay. Well, here's here's where I want to go next. Okay. Um, first, I'd like you to tell me the weakest argument you've ever heard in favor of Christian theism. So like of the stinkers, what, what, what was, what was one of the worst? Oh, uh, well, I really hate to say this because there are very thoughtful people that, um, you know, hold to the presuppositionalist uh, type arguments, but mm -hmm. the hyper presuppositionalist, I think probably one of the weakest um, where they basically just say, well, uh, you know, if somebody asks you, why should I believe the Bible? You tell them, well, because it's the Bible, the Bible says so, you know, it's God's word. It says it right there. And it's, it's that kind of circular argument, uh, where you assume your conclusion. It, it just, it doesn't people, you know, mm -hmm. um, and to be quite honest, it is an actual logical, um, in, uh, professional, you know, philosophy. People don't mm -hmm. do that in debates <laughs> unless without they do it intentionally i should say mm -hmm. uh, i've seen a bunch of debates where people sides have used um circular reasoning in their arguments and it just destroys any credibility that you have with that person 
that you're trying yeah. to dialogue with. But what so is the problem. what is the strongest anti-Christian argument you've ever heard? And I and maybe it's from an atheist, maybe it was from someone from another religion. What 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 was the argument that you've heard before that like made you go, oh man, that is difficult to answer? Well, um, I would actually have to say that it is probably one of the oldest arguments, uh, and that is the problem of evil. And while I think there are fantastic answers that more than sufficiently uh, answer the question of the problem of evil, uh, I would say that most people don't go very deep into it. Uh, now, if you read uh, things like Alvin Plantinga in his uh, Theodicy, uh, Problem of Evil, uh, and you're probably going to need to read that book in probably a couple of years and read it more than once because there's just so much information to cover there. Uh, and there's not a clear kind of pat answer that you can give for the problem of evil. And there's so many different things in it. There's two main things. There's natural evil and moral evil. You know, the natural evil would be um, hurricanes and tornadoes and, you know, stubbing your toe accidentally on, <laughs> on something, you know, different things like that. Moral obviously would be uh, murder and rape, you know, like person um, enacted uh, evil against other people. Um, but the logical problem of evil, not the logical problem of evil, I wouldn't say that one. Um, I think that one has been pretty much thoroughly refuted. Uh, from, mm. uh, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm drawing a blank. Oh. Mm, it's right on the tip of my tongue. He was an ancient uh, philosopher started with an E, Euripides? Forget, but anyway, he introduced the logical problem of evil and for, what was that? Yeah, was it Euripides? Uh, yeah. No, it Maybe. wasn't Euripides. It was, oh, dang, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up It'll, in the middle of the night. Yeah, and we'll come to you at like 2 o'clock a.m. as these things do. So what would you say is the yeah, longest, what, what's the strongest pro-Christian argument you've ever heard? We talked about the weakest one. What's the strongest one? I mean, what for you, what's the one that really, uh, I, I know that um, when during the season when I was really struggling, wrestling and asking questions, the thing I couldn't get away from was the um, resurrection of Jesus. There were lots of other things I sort of through to the wayside as I was uh, wrestling in my faith, but I I couldn't get away from the evidence for the resurrection. So what's sort of the, the strongest argument in your mind that, that you've heard? Well, I, I would say the evidence for the resurrection is definitely in the top five for me, uh, especially once I read uh, in my like, book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. It's just, it's mind-blowing, uh, the amount of evidence and the early accounts uh, that we still have of that evidence, uh, you know, 2,000 years later. It's just incredible. But personally, I find, well, there's there's the thing that would most um, impact on me personally, and then there's probably the thing that I have seen the biggest impact in actually witnessing to people. And I, I find that as strong as the evidence is uh, for the um, resurrection, people don't resonate with it unless they're really interested in digging deeper. And so I find that the most common um, effective method is probably the moral argument. And uh, there's really just no 
like you just you cannot get around the moral argument. Um, I remember in a debate, not really a debate, but it was kind of a back and forth uh, with an old friend of mine that I graduated school with. Uh, she posted some anti-Christian thing on Facebook, and I commented and being like, "Hey, uh, have you considered this?" <laughs> she was not happy about that, and she was like, "Dude, it was just a joke, you know, kind of thing." But um, you'd have to see the thing. But anyway, and I asked her. I said, um, "We somehow we got on the topic of homosexuality." And she is uh, very pro, pro-gay. And uh, so I asked her, I said, if God, or well, she was saying that it was wrong to um, persecute or judge people for being gay, for loving who they want to love kind of thing. And I asked her, I said, where did you get that from? I said, why is it wrong to do that? And she was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's just common sense. Like, everybody should know it's wrong to judge somebody for something like that. And I said, but. What's your basis? You know, where are you getting this from? On the other hand, if God does exist and he is the moral uh, foundation of the universe, then we should take seriously what he says is right and wrong. And so I have a grounding for my reality or for my morality. Where's your grounding? And he did not answer. <laughs> she, uh, she basically just shut the conversation off right there. And uh, that was the end of that one. But um so I have found, if not, you know, great emotional kind of attachment, like they're really getting into and being like, wow, you know, if not that, then it really just shows them how weak their own uh, worldview is. And mm-hmm. I think that is really um, profound in that the worldview is at the heart of any of their positions that they mm-hmm. uh, claim to have, you know, whether it's pro-gay, pro-abortion, socialism, whatever their worldview is where that all comes from. And mm-hmm. if you stick a pickaxe in that iceberg and it makes a giant crack in their worldview, that's going to have lasting effects because they're yeah. not going to be able to get away from it. And the next time that that part is up, even if it's not with me, they're going to remember. They might not even make that argument because they're afraid of <laughs> having to face that answer again. But um, yeah, the moral argument I'd say probably the strongest although my favorite one to talk about is the Kalam cosmological argument but as far as trying to witness to people definitely the moral, moral argument so well uh we'll 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 i'll decide later in the episode if we want to get into Kalam because i know once you open that can of worms like that's going to be the rest of our time so i'm i'm trying to hold off on that oh, yeah. for as long as i can uh uh but we might we might end up getting into it toward the end okay so then uh there's one more. You've answered the set of questions really well. Oh, one more. What's the weakest anti-Christian argument you've ever heard? Oh, and there are many. I know there are many, many to choose from. <laughs> uh, well, the thing that just keeps coming back to my mind is these circular arguments that, you know, um, for example, there was one argument that um, David Hume, I think, was famous for uh, famous. He basically said that miracles are impossible or, you know, um, we cannot accept any historical evidence uh, containing miracle claims because miracles are impossible. And so he he starts from that pre uh, presupposition of, (laughs) you know, miracles are impossible. And now it basically just shuts him off to any evidence 
uh, of the miraculous that we have, yeah. either modern or historical. And so anything circular, I think, is just absolutely at the bottom of the barrel of mm. atheist arguments that you could possibly make. Mm. Uh, and also um, arguments that are just illogical in their nature. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wrote an article about the if God uh, made a or a, if he made a burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, you know, the, the, the logical fallacy that is. <laughs> so, yeah, anything illogical or circular is on just absolutely horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so so I've, I've heard the rock so big argument. I'd never heard the burrito one. Um, I'm going to have to go read that article. By the way, this is a good opportunity to segue into a bit of a plug. Uh, Devin's articles, uh, he, they're posted on Evan Christian Voices, and he'll tell us in a minute if he writes anywhere else, they are absolutely fantastic. Uh, and the thing I really appreciate about your writing, Devin, you write the same way that you speak, which is very clearly and simply, um, which is not to say that the arguments you use are simple. You're very thorough in your thinking and in your communicating, but I never feel like I'm reading something academic. I don't think anything that I've read from you has been more than a 10 minute read. So I so appreciate uh, the way that you write about apologetics because it's thorough and accessible. And so often you're only getting one or the other. I know some really thorough apolog apologetics uh, apologists who I would never recommend to someone who's not like deep in the weeds in that stuff. And I know some really accessible apol apologists who are just not thorough thinkers. And you managed to do both. So is there anywhere else that you post stuff or is it mostly on Evan Christian Voices for now? Well, right now, uh, it's just Advent Christian Voices is the only place that I write. I used to be doing a lot of uh, videos, uh, just short, five, ten-minute videos uh, on different subjects on my Facebook page, Think Again Ministries. I uh, haven't done much of that recently because, you know, the whole moving and getting married and stuff like that is just basically taking up all my time. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hopefully going to start that again before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, so those are the those are the uh, ACB and uh, Think Again Ministries. The other thing Devin does really, really well, which is important in this day and age, is he memes well. Your apologetic memes are just top-notch, cream of the crop apologetics memes. I love them. Well, I can't take credit for all of those. Most of those I find pages and then basically just steal them. But oh, <laughs> I, no, no, I, I only share the ones that... Well, that's what I mean, though, is you're an excellent curator. I know you're not the one who creates the content, but you curate it well, because there are so many bad Christian apologetic memes with terrible argumentation and weak. I mean, even even just in a silly picture with a caption, you can you can tell pretty quickly what, how thoroughly the creator thought through it. The ones that you post, even if you're not the one who make them, are the best of the best. Uh, they're they're quippy and witty and quick but also like thorough. I mean, sound arguments in the forms of these cute little memes. So they're great. Well, I'm glad that somebody appreciates those as much as I do. <laughs> All right. Where to go next? Oh, I, I know what I'd like to do next because I, I so appreciate you bringing up this issue of the, the circular logic. Um, and I think it sort of comes back to a little bit as well a lot of the the discussions where people end up talking past each other. I'd love to hear from you uh, 
a rec recommendation of either a conversation or a debate that people could go check out where that actually doesn't happen. And the one that comes to my mind, which is funny because I don't consider either of these guys necessarily phenomenal debaters, although they're clearly great thinkers. Um, the conversations, any of them, because there's a series of them, between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens are some of the best I've ever seen because Wilson does such a great job of actually getting to the heart of the disagreement. He like cuts through all of all of the, um, oh, what's a Christian word for it? The horse manure. He cuts through all of the stuff. We end up so often talking around the periphery instead of getting to the, the core, the heart of the disagreement. And there are several moments in those dialogues where Doug just like goes right to the heart of the issue. And I'm like, yes, this is what, this is what I want debates to be. When I see, when I see Christians debating other people, I don't want to see them dancing around each other and, and using the same language to mean different things or different language to mean the same thing and fighting about words. I want to see them get to the heart of the disagreement. And um, those dialogues, Wilson just got right down to it. Uh, and some of the best interactions I've ever seen in apologetics. So what's one that comes to your mind that you'd recommend where it wasn't just that the debaters did a good job, but they actually sort of cut through to the heart of the disagreement? Well, the one that just jumps right out at me is there was a debate between, there's actually several of them uh, before this uh, famous former atheist passed away, uh, but it's between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, not Anthony, Anthony. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know you're a really smart guy when you have the name Anthony. <laughs> but um, it was so cordial, and the way that they really um, respected each other during the debate, uh, it, it was really inspiring um, for, mm. I think, for anybody who's wanting to get into the whole dating world. But uh, the thing that I really liked about that debate was, you know, first off, you know, the content. It was very substantive. Um, Gary Habermas, anytime he does a debate, it's going to be uh, super deep. But uh, Anthony Flew, you know, he had some good questions. He really did. Um, you know, Gary was able to answer him. And uh, there was actually a question that Anthony asked him. And he answered it. And he said, oh, well, I wasn't aware of that evidence. I guess that makes, you know, a lot of sense. And he changed his mind right there on stage. Mm. And, you know, the amount of credibility you lose during or potential credibility you can lose during a debate by conceding mm -hmm. any single point is that's that's why people don't move during a mm -hmm. debate that's why the debaters they don't move they mm -hmm. concede even one point then you know they lose points so mm -hmm. to speak um but yeah and so to see that on stage was really profound and before anthony flew died he did become a theist now, I do not believe that he was a Christian, but he at least believed in, uh, I believe it was some form of deism, um, mm. whereas, you know, God is basically in nature, uh, just kind of like setting things in motion and then just letting the natural order kind of take over from there. Mm -hmm. um, so didn't get him all the way to the resurrection, but he at least got, well, Gary Habermas was one of the guys anyway, but at least got him um, to theism. And so that was really, really thoughtful debate, you know, with somebody actually open to the evidence instead of saying they're open to the evidence and then shooting down every piece of evidence, no matter how good it is kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I always... Contrary, any different... Oh, Lawrence Krauss, if you find him, 
it's basically you're gonna be watching him take pot shots at whoever he's debating. <laughs> he's he's um, interested in actually having thoughtful dialogue. He's just there to rip people up and down. And uh, William yeah. Lane Craig, I don't know, I that man. <laughs> William Lane Craig was incredibly patient with Lawrence Krauss in his four-hour debate that I watched. And oh my gosh, yeah, don't watch Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you bring up something I think really important here, which is something that I'm learning as an apologist, um, which is the power of concession. Uh, you're so right that, uh, and, and I, I wonder how much of it is a problem in the world of apologetics and how much of it is sort of leaking in from the world of politics, where uh, the worst thing you can do in any debate is to apologize or concede a point or say you're wrong about something. But I've actually found, at least in, I mean, I've, I've never heard anything formal, but in personal apologetics, one of the most powerful tools that I have is the tool of concession, where when I can say to someone, I see your point, or you're right about that, or I even I agree with you, that that does leaps and bounds more to draw them into your own arguments than just some kind of a forceful, powerful uh, uh, uh unwillingness to move on and or or to i think there's more power in concession than there is in digging your heels in on every point along the way how do you what do you think of that no i agree 100 and uh yeah that that's what drives me crazy about uh watching old like fox news versus cnn kind of thing it's like uh, that's, that's one reason why I really appreciate Ben Shapiro in the terms of, in terms of politics is that he's not afraid to tell people that no, Trump should not have done that. He was horrible, and I condemn that action that he you know just did. You know, Fox News. It's almost like like if they say Trump did something wrong, then they're basically telling their viewers to go vote for his opponent come November, right. and that's right. that's just not the case. You know, people are you know no. We need to stop acting like people are perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And not only concession, but even just uh, acknowledging that the other person has really done a lot of thinking on mm -hmm. a subject can go a long way. Uh, one of the other guys that I watch semi-regularly, uh, uh, his name is Cameron Bertuzzi. Uh, he has a YouTube channel called Capturing Christianity. He's a photographer, so that's where the Capturing Christianity thing came from. He, um, he led on this kind of conversation on a plane where he was going I, I don't know where he was going but uh there was a guy sitting next to him and he was you know starting to try to ask him questions get to know him a little bit so that he can kind of try to witness to him and the guy had revealed that he was a um an astrophysicist <laughs> and that he was on his way to some um like nasa conference or something and so uh he starts you know telling him about christianity and you know what he does and um, you know, asking him if he's open to the evidence kind of thing. He said, yeah, I guess I'm open to the evidence. And so he, they started going through some things. And the astrophysicist dude, I don't know his name, but um, he asks him a series of questions. He said he had about like five or seven good questions that Cameron did not have the answers to. And rather than trying to, you know, skirt the issue or trying to give some answer to a question he didn't know, he mm -hmm. just said, hey, uh, really quick, he pulled out of his laptop case a pen and a piece of paper. And he said, hey, let me write down these questions I want to, you know, research into this more. You know, you bring mm -hmm. up some really good points. You know, that's, I hadn't thought about that before. I would love to 
you know, search and find some answers. And if you'd like, uh, you can give me your email address and I'll email you back fine. Hmm. And the guy was like, shuddered. He was, he didn't know what to say. He was just like, what? <laughs> You're going to look into that kind of stuff. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah super interesting stuff. And I'd love to, um, you know, if, if you're open to the evidence and it's uh, sharing what I find with you. And he was just kind of dumbfounded. He was just like, I've never seen somebody do that before. You know, most people were just like, Oh, you just need to have faith and you know, you're just higher and all this other stuff. So, so that really went a long way with uh, that guy on the plane. So, uh, mm. but yeah, the concession and just acknowledging that as a brain is <laughs> absolutely huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate you bringing up Shapiro. Uh, we mentioned him before on the show I remember in 2016 when everyone else was either uh, Trump is the second coming of Christ or he's the next Hitler. And then Shapiro was doing these segments, good Trump, bad Trump. And I was like, oh, my, is he the is he the only rational voice in the entire political world? Uh, and he's wrong about plenty of stuff. But I have always appreciated that about him, that willingness to concede that the people on the other side of the argument might not all be morons. Now, yeah, he makes a very um, important distinction mm -hmm. leftists and liberals. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate that from him because there is a wide variety of people who lean politically to the left side of the aisle. And uh, mm -hmm. just acknowledging that was like, thank you. Uh, I'm not a liberal, but uh, just knowing that not all liberals are leftists, so to speak, mm -hmm. is uh, really that's that's a thumbs up. <laughs> so. now um turning to a slightly different subject on apologetics which would be the history of it um who are some of like the historical figures in apologetics who've influenced you i know for me uh c.s lewis has been really huge uh, and he's not even necessarily a uh an apologist in any traditional sense but i think there are elements of apologetics in some of his writings and they were really influential for me. But I mean, I know for some people, they go back to Aquinas or even as far back as Augustine or Jerome. I mean, who are some of the maybe one or two historical apologists that have really affected you? Well, uh, I haven't actually gone into a whole lot of uh, historical apologists, although I do know that a lot of the uh, arguments that I've heard had their beginnings with people like, uh, for example, Justin Martyr, uh, who was probably one of the very first apologists uh, back in the second century, I believe. Um, and, you know, people all the way back to, like you mentioned, uh, Augustine or Jerome. And there are people that were doing this kind of thing, you know, at the very beginning of Christianity. And uh, their works have been founded upon uh, by professional philosophers of religion, uh, theologians and apologists alike. And, um, you know, their, their work has inspired, you know, generations to go even further mm -hmm. and to kind of pick up where they left off. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't really read much uh, the, like, kind of church father kind of people. or uh, mm -hmm. I actually, believe it or not, have not read a whole C.S. Lewis either. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do know that C.S. Lewis did engage in a on some level, and he actually was the only one who really warned me what I was kind of getting myself into uh, getting into apologetics. Cause uh, the quote that I saw from him, he, he said something along the lines of there's nothing more 
dangerous to a person person's faith than the work of an apologist. And that, that really hit me. I was just like, no, that's, that's kind of true. You know, you're really putting your views out there and opening it up to scrutiny to see mm -hmm. if, you know, it comes out perfectly fine, you know, after all mm -hmm. the uh, attacks and everything and possible answers. And so mm -hmm. that's, uh, that was a kind of a wake up call. I was like, if I really want to, I'm, I'm signing up for something. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's wow. uh, the, the, to it, it's, it doesn't affect me as much. When I first got into apologetics, it seemed like every new question that I came across was just like existential crisis right now. Like this is <laughs> happening, <laughs> you know, about it. So after I got into stuff, I was like, you know what? You know, I actually felt that kind of panic attack coming on um, mm -hmm. uh, when I had heard a question that I hadn't heard before. And I just hit the brakes. I was like, okay, let me just take inventory of everything that I have learned over the last two years. Mm -hmm. Every time this happens, mm -hmm. I go and I, and even if it takes a week or minutes for me to find, you know, a good answer, you know, uh, it always comes out being okay. Everything's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity is true. And I need to not freak out every time I hear a new question. And so the more mm -hmm. and more that I got kind of grounded in uh, the, evidence, uh, especially for the resurrection, um, all the different moral arguments, the intellectual side of Christianity. The more I got grounded in that, the less these questions affect me. And so it's mm -hmm. like, you know what, I've got enough of a base now. To... I'm okay. And I can actually even go searching for questions instead of waiting for them to come to me. And mm -hmm. uh, so I think that I, I just see God's hand in that. And it's brought me to a place where um, I don't know if you've watched many marvel films but uh <laughs> doctor strange was kind of an epiphany for me sort of yeah. uh, doctor strange uh for anybody who hasn't he basically gets paralyzed almost from his hand for his hands he can't really use his hands they're all kind of broken and he's a neurosurgeon so he kind of needs those <laughs> and he was known for having really steady hands you know uh, under the operating table but um he couldn't do surgery anymore and he felt like he kind of lost his entire identity and so he goes trying to find uh, experimental medicine and anything he can to try to get his the use of his hands back and he goes uh to this place in the mountains of wherever and he, he learns of this entire world that existed and he knew he had this power that he didn't know existed either and that uh so he could use this power and uh once he got this power he kind of was at a crossroads and didn't really realize it until uh, the ancient one, I think is what they call her, kind of laid it out for him. Mm -hmm. And basically there was different roads that he could take. One person that came before him took one road. Dr. Strange took the other. And that was that you could either use this power to get your hands, you know, the use of your hands back. You can just go back to your normal life and, you know, just be satisfied with what you found. Or you can be part of something that is much bigger than yourself and really, you know, use this power to protect and help other people. And so one guy, he, he settled for his miracle, as he said, and he went back to his normal life. Um, and but Dr. Strange, he, he took the other route. He said, no, I'm going to, you know, use this stuff that I found to help other people. And so that's kind of the, how I felt getting into apologetics. I needed this for me originally. I needed this for my faith that was kind of being shaken and, 
tossed around. But then once I was kind of grounded, I was like, you know what? I could just go about my life again and act like this was just all kind of a useful, but not really um, useful beyond its initial purpose. Uh, or I could actually go and use this and help other Christians that are struggling, especially younger Christians um, who are scared even to ask mm. uh, the elders in their church, fearing that they would be uh, shunned for mm. expressing doubt uh, or anything mm. like that. That's kind of up there for a little bit, uh, that if I opened up about this, then I was going to get like excommunicated or something, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um, there are do that. Jehovah's Witnesses, if you um, leave the church especially, but if you start uh, asking questions or researching stuff on your own, they will shun you. It's mm-hmm. an actual thing that they do. They shun you. They will not. Your entire social circle is cut off. Yeah. And that can be a really powerful thing. But but anyway, I kind of got off on a tangent there. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing now is I'm using the things that I've found, uh, this newfound knowledge that I have to be able to help other people who are struggling in the same way that I was, or at least yeah. prevent them from <laughs> struggling in the way that I did first yeah. place. But um, yeah. I forget starting but I'm yeah. <laughs> off on a huge tangent. <laughs> it's okay it's okay i think one thing that you just did which i really appreciate um is you really brought in the personal side of apologetics i think this is one thing that i've found in every apologist that i've really dug into you know not just heard one debate here or there but really listen to a lot of their material as you end up finding out that there's something very personal going on there. And I know that, I know that there was, and still is for me, uh, look, the, there was a period of maybe seven or eight years when the only thing I, I really continued to believe about Christianity was that there was a Christ just about everything else. I mean, the scriptures, the, the, most of the things I'd been taught, uh, the, the, creation narrative in Genesis. I mean, there was just so much of the Christian faith that had gone out the window as I was asking all of these questions. And one of the things that God did was he used my doubting and my questioning to uh, drive me into the scripture in a way that I've never been before. And it's not because I didn't know the scriptures. I grew up in the church. I knew that I memorized the Bible verses. I knew the stories. But I had never really had to seek before, and for the first time I was seeking, and one of the things that I found as I searched for answers is I found the scriptures to be the word of God. I found them to be truly the inspired, uh, uh, the God-breathed, the theanustas, the, the, so that soul infallible rule of faith and life, all those phrases we use, it was like for the first time I came to, after many years of struggling, I really came to not just uh, confess that intellectually, but deep in my heart and in my soul, I came to embrace that reality. And it was through the trial, it was through the tempest of questioning. And so um, my faith, uh, not only in Jesus Christ, but in his written word, it has really been grounded in the uh, apologists and the apologetics and the arguments and the questioning like apologetics for me on the on, on one hand is it's almost sport like it's fun to have arguments and counter arguments and cross examination that's just fun um some people don't find that fun i do but there's another part of it which is very very personal uh, it's uh, i'm an apologist because uh 
of the apologetic that God has provided to me through these various voices. And so it's something very personal. And I appreciate you bringing that into the conversation, that it's not just a series of objective arguments and counter arguments. This is, this is about souls. It's about life. Yeah, that's the most important part. And uh, when I realized that, I actually um, kind of came to a different kind of crossroads in my life. I went to culinary school, and my entire life, I was like, you know what? I want to be a chef. I want to be a really great chef, and uh, I can cook. But when I kind of started having these deep questions and searching for answers and stuff, that all kind of just fell to the wayside. But um, And I realized when I found all these questions, I was like, you know, I could be a chef my entire life or I could try to go into apologetics and kind of do this stuff that William Lane Craig and uh, Gary Habermas and uh, Greg Kokel and all these other guys do. And so that's, that's my eventual hope is to be able to teach apologetics or even go uh, and travel the country, going to college campuses or high school, uh, mm -hmm. start talking about, you know, the evidence for Christianity. And um, so that's kind of my thing right now. And, you know, cooking, has little if not no uh effect for eternity so it just kind of lost the purpose for me mm -hmm. yeah the, the whole apologetics thing kind of kicked me in the what is life <laughs> yeah but yeah all right are you ready for the speed round here let's do it Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a speed round, and then we'll do Kalam for however long I can stand to do it before my head hurts. And then we'll, we'll, wrap, we'll wrap things up before we get to two hours, okay? Because you've got other things you got to do. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a speed round of apologetics the worst way possible. You have to give a one-sentence answer to my questions and challenges to the Christian faith. So you can take your time to think for a moment, but you only get one sentence, okay? All right. You, all right. Okay. Here we go. Question number one. Um, why did God let my grandma die? That's why I'm not a Christian. Start with an easy one. Death entered the world because of our sin and is a natural consequence of our sin. I guess that was a sentence. I was going to follow it up with something, but I was like, oh, I can't. So. <laughs> yeah, I do I do not recommend this as a, as a way to do apologetics. This is, this is the worst way to do it, but it's a speed round. So uh, we're going to stick to the speed round. Okay. Uh, the resurrection is a myth. It's not physically possible. I'm going to answer that with a question and say, have you looked into the evidence for the resurrection? <laughs> yes, and there is no evidence. There's only people who claim it happened. There's nothing scientific to confirm it. Hmm. So many different ways I could go with that. <laughs> 
<laughs> just do a compound sentence. Okay, there we go. So saying that miracles are impossible because of physicalism is a circular argument in that it uh, presupposes that miracles are impossible, but what is your evidence that miracles are impossible and therefore the resurrection could not happen? Christianity is really not that different from any other religion. I mean, they all worship the same God. Uh, why does it matter which version of, of religion you choose? It doesn't matter. Have you looked into the other religions at all? <laughs> <laughs> that is the best answer, because usually the answer is no. <laughs> um, all right. Christianity is just the amalgamation of a bunch of legends around its time. The flood is just the story of Gilgamesh. Jesus Christ is just the son of Horus. It's really just a bunch of... Greek philosophy and pagan myths mushed together. It's not anything unique or original. You say that Christianity came from pagan origins, from other gods, and Christians just kind of copied him from other religions. What is your source for that? The internet. I rest my case. <laughs> uh, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Aha. Uh -huh. I know that Christianity is not true because of the crusades and um, oh, I'm losing all my fancy words. What's the thing where they beheaded Queen Mary? It starts with an I. Oh my goodness. Christian, a bunch of Christians have done a whole bunch of nasty things in the name of Jesus. Therefore, I won't be a Christian. The Inquisition. That's it. The Inquisition. That was what I was trying to come up with. Let's see. That is a really deep one, and trying to get one sentence. Let's see. Uh, so because Christians, or people claiming to be Christians throughout history, have done horrible things, therefore Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Nicely done. Nicely done. Oh, that was fun. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do uh, Kalam. And have you seen any of the – I love these things. Uh, I forget who does them, but there's a, there's a YouTube channel that has – oh, I see you put, raising your fist for Kalam. Uh, there's a YouTube channel that does – has professionals explain things in like five or six different levels. We're just going to stick with three, okay? Uh, so at first, this is going to feel like the rapid fire round again, but don't worry. You'll get to elucidate your thoughts. Uh, so let's do let's do this first. Kalam cosmological argument for a five-year-old. 
think you cut out there a little bit. You still there? Yeah, yeah, it just okay. kind of glitched a little okay. bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going we're going to do three levels of the Kalam cos cosmological argument. Level number 1, please explain the Kalam cosmological argument for a 5-year-old. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so, hey there, little Timmy. Um, where'd all this stuff come from? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, Kalam cosmological argument for a 15 year old. How did the universe come to be? Well, what caused the universe to exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? All right, and now the moment you've been waiting for. Um, I will give you up to 10 minutes. You don't have to take the full 10, but up to 10 minutes to explain as much as you wish about the Kalam cosmological argument. At 10 minutes, I'm gonna cut you off, but I will I will let you roam free for a little bit. All right. So the Kalam cosmological argument uh, is one of many cosmological arguments for God's existence. Uh, the word Kalam comes from the medieval word, uh, meaning, or I'm sorry, the Arabic word for medieval theology. Uh, so Kalam basically just means the cosmological cosmological argument from medieval theology. Uh, it is summarized in a basic syllogism, which has two premises and one conclusion. And so you go through the premises, and logically speaking, if the premises are each uh, correct, premise one and premise two, then logically the conclusion follows out of necessity. And so premise one of the Kalam cosmological argument is, as William Lane Craig puts it, everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Premise number two, there we go, two, is that the universe began to exist. And now if everything that began to exist has a cause for its existence, and the universe began to exist, then it logically follows that the universe had a cause for its existence. Now the first thing you might be thinking is, why does that prove God's existence? And that is the uh, argument that Stephen Woodford made in his first uh, debate with Cameron Bertuzzi on the Kalam cosmological argument. He says that it does not remotely support theism, but what he failed to do was actually look at the larger discussion that stems from this core syllogism. And so each premise has to be defended individually and supported with its own arguments uh, or sub arguments, if you like. And so the first premise says that, the, uh, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, most people would agree with that. We don't just randomly see things like uh, horses or root beer or an Eskimo village just popping out of nothing. Uh, and so everything that begins to exist has a cause in our experience. This cup of coffee that I was drinking, it did not just pop into existence. I had to put it in this Keurig over here put a coffee pot in it, and there's a whole series of events that led up to this 
cup of coffee being brewed. <clears throat> and so everything in our experience has a cause for its existence. Now, some have tried to wiggle their way out premise by bringing in quantum physics and i will not go super crazy into quantum physics but the idea is that well in the quantum world we do see things popping in and out of existence we see all these particles that are just popping in and out of existence almost at random but the thing is that they are not actually popping in and out of existence they are actually popping going passing through and back through a fluctuation of energy which is indeed something. <laughs> it did not come from nothing. It is passing through a uh, fluctuation of energy, of positive and negative energy. <clears throat> so that, uh, that objection can be easily answered by no, quantum physics has no bearing on this argument. <clears throat> so with premise one thoroughly defended, we have uh, premise two, and premise two is that the universe began to exist. Now, for a long time, it was widely believed by uh, this, the scientists throughout the entire world who actually got together and discussed this stuff that the universe itself was eternal. And so remember, if the universe is eternal, then the first premise doesn't apply because it was not; it did not begin to exist. <clears throat> but uh, recently, well, relatively recently, there have been a lot of discoveries that uh, have pretty much buried this uh, theory altogether. Uh, namely, that uh, Edwin Hubble, when he invented the Hubble telescope, he actually was able to uh, the different galaxies. And what he witnessed when he looked through the telescope, he saw these different galaxies moving away from each other. And so what he, um, the initial thought was, oh, well, we must be at the center of the universe, everything's moving out. But actually, um, what was actually happening was if you were in any galaxy in the entire universe, and you look through that telescope at other galaxies, you'd see the exact same thing. Everything is moving away from each other. And so if you rewind the clock, it all comes back to a single point of origin. Now, this gave rise to the Big Bang Theory, this singularity, this time singularity. Everything came from one spot and exploded outward. And so the point, I'm not trying to defend the Big Bang Theory or disprove it or anything like that that is kind of irrelevant right now. The basic point is that uh, this was evidence against the universe being eternal, because if you just wound the clock back enough, everything would just collide into each other. And so that uh, is one evidence against the uh, eternality of the universe. But then it basically, the nail in the coffin was in 2003, I believe, when um, Alexander Vilenkin, along with uh, Bord and Guth, came up with this thing called the Bord-Guth-Vilenkin Theorem, or the BGV Theorem, which postulates that any universe that is currently expanding cannot be past eternal. And in the words of um, Alexander Vilenkin himself, he said in 2006, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the, or behind the idea <clears throat> of a past eternal universe. They must face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, this is one of the most well-known cosmologists in the world. And contrary to what Lawrence Krauss thinks, no, that is exactly what he is saying, is that the universe is not eternal. Uh, <clears throat> and William Lane Craig has actually talked with him uh, personally just to make sure that he had that clear when he used it to defend his version of the Kalam cosmological argument. 
And so if the universe did not begin to exist, that, or if the universe did begin to exist, excuse me, then it has a cause for its existence because we have already seen in premise one that everything in our experience uh, comes into being because of an external cause. It does not just pop in and out of existence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so logically conclude, <clears throat> excuse me, it logically follows that the universe had a cause. Now, again, what does this have to do with God? You know, it never said that that first cause was God. But again, this is the broader discussion, and so we're not done. We have to examine what this first cause would have to be like in order for it to be able to create a universe. Could you imagine how much power it would take to create an entire universe and have it explode out of absolutely nothing? And basically just form everything that we see right now. It would be almost impossible with everything. No, it would be impossible with, even with all the power that we can generate as human beings. You'd have to be enormously powerful to be able to create an entire universe. You would also have to be outside of space and time as this uh, point of beginning of the universe is the beginning of space and time itself. And so we have a spaceless, timeless, enormously powerful first cause of the universe. This cause must also be a personal cause. Now, why does it have to be a personal cause? This doesn't make sense when people usually hear it for the first time. Well, it has to be a personal cause because a random object that is eternal can't just all of a sudden decide one day, hey, I'm going to create a universe. No, you have to actually have causal power. You have to have freedom of the will to be able to create a universe. And so this uh, this must be a personal um, being. And so what, fit, what fits this very well is a mind. A mind has freedom of the will and causal power, as philosophers put it. <clears throat> and so we have an enormously powerful, timeless, spaceless uh Excuse me, I just had a brain fart. Uh, Enormously powerful, timeless, spaceless, personal cause of the universe. And just to make that point even even clearer really quick, um, for example, if water had been around for eternity, let's just pretend, for example, that there was nothing except for water and it had been there for all of eternity. Now imagine that this water was frozen, or no, the, imagine that the, um, no, yes, the water was frozen. What is the cause of water's freezing? It is the temperature being below zero degrees Celsius. But if the water, or if the temperature had been below zero, or zero degrees Celsius for all of eternity, then at no point in the past will this water have begun to freeze. And so something needs to change. Some force has to create a change in the atmosphere. There must be a cause for the temperature being below zero degrees Celsius for the water to be able to freeze. There has to be a cause and it has to be able to actually choose to do something. And so we have a first cause which is personal, enormously powerful, um, timeless and spaceless. And that is what everybody means by God. I don't know if that was 10 minutes or not, but. That was almost that was almost ten minutes on the dot. That was impressive, and uh, 
sections of the Kalam cosmological argument I've heard, yours ranks up there as least confusing. So well done. <laughs> That's what I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me do just two more things with you, and then we'll let you go. And so appreciate your time. One, it's it's sort of a, one of the privileges of being able to host this show is I sort of get to ask questions I feel like asking. And so this isn't even necessarily, uh, I think it's related, but it's not even necessarily in line with the direction we've been going. But I'm going to ask you anyways. So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is in constructing a biblical worldview, where do you start? Because people go back and forth about you either start with your theology of God or you start with your understanding of scripture, right? So do you start with God? Do you start with scripture? I think, though, there's a third possible answer, which sounds the most humanist, but I think it, you have to at least consider it, which is Rene Descartes' uh, point. I think, therefore, I am. In some ways, I must begin with yourself because any anything that you're going to speak, anything you're going to observe, you have to be able to observe and communicate those things. So given those three choices, when constructing a Christian worldview, would you begin with scripture, God, or you? Well, um, misunderstanding the question here a little bit, I think I get it. Um, but the answer that I would give is that I would go with my understanding of Scripture using the rational ability that I already apparently have. Uh, and so that was one thing that came up in uh, a uh, I don't know if it was really a debate, but it was more of a critique of a, um, was he, he was a naturalist, I believe mm -hmm. something. Uh, he basically, there was a person that, um, anything that is true has to be scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. And so in order for somebody to know anything, it has to test the scientific method, the scientific, um, you know, the five steps or however many there are in the scientific method. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that you can't even start there without already presupposing that you have a rational ability to use the scientific method in order to find something out. And so there are some things that cannot be tested and proven with the scientific method. You have to start with the presupposition that you exist and that you actually rationalize and mm -hmm. think about things. You can actually trust that rationalization. You can trust your own ability to reason. And so that is something that cannot be um, scientifically proven. You know, I mm -hmm. can't prove that I can think. You know, you go to my brain and you can't reduce consciousness to a physical object. That is something that Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, another plug for another YouTube channel uh, who gets into a lot of deep stuff uh, in apologetics and theology. Uh, but he, he argues that you cannot reduce the mind to the brain, basically. And that you have to basically start from this point of rationality. And um, so I would start with my understanding of scripture through my uh, presupposition that I exist, that I can rationalize and think of things and that I can trust those rationalizations. And so, and I believe that that is something that God has he has given us a soul. He has given us consciousness. He has given us emotions, will, uh, mind. And so I would kind of start from that presupposition.
question and then go to script. So I guess technically three. <laughs> oh no, there you, there you go. That's good. That's good. All right. Um, one final question for you, and this is a dead horse by this by now on this show, but we're gonna keep beating it because we think it's important. Um, we've talked a lot about apologetics, sort of to other faiths, whether it be atheism, agnosticism, uh, Islam, Mormonism. You know, so many other faiths around the world. However, just for a few minutes, I'd like you to remark on apologetics within Christian theism, because as you know, we are in the middle of a, a really challenging time as a denomination as we are wrestling with this uh, doctrine of Trinity, uh, the, the nature of Christ. And so I think there are some people who would say, would agree, oh, we should engage in apologetics with a, a Muslim or an atheist, but why would we engage in apologetics with someone who claims to believe in Jesus? Well, I think that goes back to uh, what Paul said. He said that um, a lot of people quote the scripture um, saying that all scripture is God-breathed um, or inspired by God, whatever translation you want to use. Um, but they don't finish. I think that's important here is that he says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and for uh, reproof and doctrine and correction and training in righteousness. And these things are all things that need to be done within the church. And I think that it's, to be quite honest, I think that it's lacking nowadays. People don't want to go into the deep theology. And uh, that's why you've got all these mega churches with people who don't even know basic Christian doctrine. And it, it's, it's really sad to see. And it's happening all throughout the countries. By the way, before somebody takes that out of context, I want to make something clear. Uh, I do believe that churches have a place in uh, the body of Christ and that they can be wonderful things. Um, given that they have interaction uh, amongst believers in small groups where you can actually get to fellowship with your uh, believers. But megachurches in themselves, I do not think, are a bad thing. So in case somebody wants to use that to you know, say that I said that megachurches suck, I actually go to a megachurch right now. So I, <laughs> so, um, But anyway, apart from that, uh, I think that it's important because um, Peter, I believe, in his epistle, he warns of people uh, that are bringing in destructive heresies into the church and that we need to be grounded in the essentials of the faith. Uh, that, I think, is basically kind of going into what we're talking about right now is, um, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, that's been debated since the church's inception, basically. Um, Justin Martyr, I believe, maybe it was Justin Martyr, maybe it wasn't. I can't remember. Somebody was actually a dialogue. It might have been in his dialogue with Trifo where he was arguing. Um, not for the Trinity as a whole, but at least for the deity of Christ, uh, where Trifo, I believe, thought that uh, Jesus was just a man, or it may have been uh, Arianism that was being um, refuted uh, with arguments for the Trinity. And an interesting thing, a little side note, uh, somebody asked me a while back when I did the article on the Paracope Adultery about the uh, Comma Johannine, uh, jo Johan Johanna however you pronounce that um pause, pause for a minute because i just want to say that article on the pericope adultery i mean you've got some great ones is my favorite so far so if anyone hasn't read that go get on the evan christian voices page and go read that article it's phenomenal go on okay <laughs> it took so much uh, research to look deeper into that it was insane but um but yeah and they asked me about the comma Joanine. Jo 
in first john 5 7 there's a passage that says um and most some people use this as a proof text for the trinity and i don't think they should because um well first what it says is basically um there are three who testify the father the son and the holy spirit and these three are one um but the thing is that was most likely not original to the epistle of first john um and the other thing is the evidence might may, may be an argument from silence but the thing is the doctrine of the trinity and the deity of christ it has been argued before this um verse popped up in the manuscript tradition and if it was actually in there you would expect that in people's apologetics for the trinity you'd expect that verse to be in there because it's pretty clear but we don't find it anywhere um so that's that's just a little side note there and so um that's another argument against the comma um johannine although again there were plenty of arguments that were perfectly fine without that verse we don't lose the doctrine of the trinity simply because that verse is not original to um the uh, original epistle uh so anyway but yeah so things like the trinity or uh like salvation by grace through faith alone um these essential points of the faith they need to be defended and some people uh i've even had people in my own church um say things maybe not about essential christian doctrine because i would have you know lovingly tried to correct them on that but very important things uh having to do with say homosexuality or abortion or whatever it might be um saying oh you know that doesn't really matter we don't need to talk about that you know it doesn't need to be um looked at from you know theological perspective or anything like that we we shouldn't even really bring it up in church and i think that's a big mistake um because we need to be grounded in the uh the, in the essentials of the faith and you know paul tells the thessalonians i believe um that they are to hold to the tradition hold fast to the tradition which they brought and the tradition that he's speaking there is not the tradition of the catholic church it is the written tradition of uh the doctrines that they had written down fired by the holy spirit and in the new testament there's kind of two main ways that the faith or well the word faith is used uh, in the greek it's pistis uh the root word but they use it in terms of your own trust and commitment to god and it also when whenever paul uses the word the faith he's referring to the essential christian doctrines that they have told the church and that the church is founded upon you know that christ is the son of god that he di died was buried and uh, rose again um he died for our sins uh that it's important and people need to stop saying that it's not i really think it's probably one of the most destructive things that's happening in the church today not just in our own uh denomination but across the board in the entire body of christ well we're closing in on two hours and i could do another two but i think for the sake of uh brevity we'll we'll cut it off there but let me just say i am um, it brings me great joy and encouragement to know that we have young men like you uh it, connected to the denomination and for me it's been a just a wonderful two hours uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime and man just really appreciate you coming on and and after all the the failed attempts and the missed opportunities i'm just so glad that you gave us another shot <laughs> well, i'm glad you have finally been on the show it was, it was a blast i had a great time Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, we're going to end things there. You'll see 
Eric and I will be back on Tuesday. Uh, we'll be picking up our conversation. We did part one last week on uh, misunderstandings of Calvin, and then this week we'll do uh, misconceptions and misunderstandings of Calvinism, and maybe we'll even get into it a little bit since we're not quite 100% agreed on that. Uh, but we'll hope to see you Tuesday, and thanks for tuning in today. God bless.